Hello, 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 and hello. I am so happy to welcome you to another episode of Shake Up Before Years, a show that is geared towards providing simplified medication information as well as talk about the disease conditions that these medicines are prescribed for from a pharmacist's perspective. My name is Osas. I'm your friendly pharmacist. This show does not serve to replace your medical provider or advisor. It is meant to create more medication and disease awareness for you, the consumer, for you, the patient. As a disclaimer, I currently do not work for any big pharma, neither do I have any vested stake in any medication out there. Today's show is Managing Hypertension Part 2, and it will take an in-depth look at the medications used to treat hypertension, talk about resistant hypertension, combination therapy, when best to administer antihypertensive medications, and delve a little bit into hypertension in pregnancy. Back in episode one, the discussion was centered around the definitions of hypertension based on the various guidelines that are out there with emphasis on using validated BP devices to accurately check blood pressure. So after confirming a diagnosis of high blood pressure with either an ambulatory BP measuring device or home BP measuring device in addition to a doctor's office measuring um, device, what is the next thing to do? Medications are not always the first choice in managing hypertension. So depending on the stage of the hypertension, it could be pre-hypertension, borderline hypertension, stage one hypertension, and based on conversations with your medical provider, lifestyle modifications alone preceding medication therapy could be the route. These lifestyle changes include exercising regularly, salt restrictions, especially in black folks, managing stress, limiting alcohol consumption, smoking cessation, as well as treating sleep apnea. And if you go that route and the high blood pressure is still persisting, then obviously the next route is medication therapy. Per the JNC-8 guidelines, JNC, the Joint National Commission Edition 8 guidelines, there are four classes four classes of medications used as first-line treatment of hypertension. These classes include number one, the thiazide diuretic. In this class, we have hydrochlorothiazide, we have clothalidone, we have indipamide, we have methylazone to mention but a few. The second class is the calcium channel blockers. In this class, we have nimodipine, amlodipine, nifedipine, the tiazam, verapamil, listradipine, and a host of other medications. Class 3 is the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, popularly called ACE inhibitors. In this class, lisinopril, enalopril, captopril, benazopril, and all the prils that you can think of. And finally, the angiotensin-2 receptor blockers, also called ARBs. In this class, we have vosartin, losartin, omesartin, candesartin, and temisartin. 
Temisartin has been shown to have a dual role in the sense that it has some cholesterol-lowering properties. So if you're out there and you're prescribed an ARB and you have high cholesterol, Temisartin might be a good choice to promote compliance. I'm going to try and describe uh, blood pressure as a product of cardiac output and total peripheral resistance. Cardiac output is determined by stroke volume and heart rate. The biggest driver for stroke volume is preload. What is preload? Simply, preload is the force that stretches the cardiac muscle uh, prior to contraction. Now, this force is composed of volume that fills the heart during contraction. Preload is influenced to a large extent by this fluid volume. Excess salt intake, as well as retention of sodium or salt by the kidneys, greatly increase fluid, which increases preload. For total peripheral resistance, it is simply the squeeze exerted on the blood by blood vessels. The more the squeeze, which is vasoconstriction, the higher the pressure, and the lesser the squeeze, the lesser the pressure. I tried to give a good analogy of total peripheral resistance using the garden hose. For those who have garden hoses and you tend to water your garden, think about it. The smaller the lumen or the width of the garden hose, the more the pressure. And conversely, the larger the width of the lumen, the lesser the water pressure. That is total peripheral resistance from my perspective in a nutshell. Total peripheral resistance is driven by this functional squeeze as well as a structural increase in blood vessels, also called hypertrophy. This is primarily due to sympathetic nervous overactivity and the activation of the renin angiotensis system, popularly called RAS. Now, guess what influences both the sympathetic nervous overactivity and the RAS? Stress. Yes, S-T-R-E-S-S. Stress plays a big role in influencing total peripheral resistance. So, an increase in any one of these parameters, an increase in cardiac output or peripheral resistance without a corresponding decrease in one of the other will lead to a sustained increase in blood pressure. So when we treat blood pressure, our goal is to target a decrease in one of these two parameters. Now think about this analogy. The product 12, the number 12, is a function of 4 times 3, 4 multiplied by 3. An increase in 4 to 5 or 6 without a corresponding decrease in 3 to 1 or 2, will give a number higher than 12. Similarly, an increase in cardiac output without a corresponding decrease in total peripheral resistance will keep sustained blood pressure. There is a difference in the type of hypertension based on race. People of black heritage are more associated with salt-sensitive hypertension. Treatment of choice for monotherapy. Monotherapy is the one drug of choice in this class is either the thiazide diuretics or the calcium channel blockers. Caucasians are associated less with salt sensitivity and more associated with the high renin, high cardiac output hypertension due to sympathetic activation of the renin system. And the treatment of choice for monotherapy is either the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs. Let's delve into thiazide diuretics. They are usually first line for treatment of hypertension per the JNC8 guidelines. Now, I have used the word 
or the verbiage first line. Um, and first line simply means a drug that is the first choice for treating a particular condition because it has been shown to be very, very effective for that condition with the least likelihood of causing a side effect. So thiazide diuretics are first line. They are used alone or in combination with other antihypertensive medications in all age groups, regardless of race, except in the presence of chronic kidney disease where the ARBs or the ACE will be the drug of choice. Research has shown the thiazide to be the most cost-effective medications, meaning that they are superior in preventing cardiovascular disease at a lower cost. Amongst the thiazide diuretics, clothalidone is the drug of choice. It has been shown to have um, the best diuretic. It has been shown to be the best diuretic to control blood pressure and prevent mortality and morbidity. Compared to hydrochlorothiazide, it has been shown to be one and a half to two times more potent than hydrochlorothiazide with a longer half-life. Clothalidone is also the drug of choice for older patients with osteoporosis as it has been associated with a lower incidence of pelvic fractures when compared with other antihypertensive. Although it is a great drug, the thiazides do not work well in patients with decreased renal function. So typically in the hospital, we tend to stop giving thiazide for patients who have a creatinine clearance less than 30 mils per minute. Now, there are other diuretics that are very popular, and one of such is furosemide, also called Lasix. Furosemide is a really good diuretic drug because it provides good diuresis in patients with fluid retention. But mark my words, it provides no antihypertensive benefits. Just something I thought you should know. Side effects of thiazides include they cause low potassium. Low potassium can be very life-threatening. It causes low sodium. It can increase uric acid levels in the body. So try to avoid the thiazides in patients that have gout. It can cause low magnesium. It can increase your cholesterol as well as your blood sugar. So use in caution with patients who have diabetes. All of these side effects I just mentioned are all dose-related. Non-dose-related side effects of thiazides include sexual dysfunction. So before you use thiazide or you're currently using thiazide and you have erectile dysfunction, you might want to speak to your doctor. It also causes sleep disturbance. In general, all diuretics, including the thiazides, can lead to dehydration due to increased urination. And it is very, very important to stay hydrated why on a diuretic? The second class is the calcium channel blockers. Same as the thiazides, the calcium channel blockers are, recommend, are recommended to be used as first-line um, um, therapies alone or in combination with other antihypertensive in all patients with hypertension. Similarly, similar to um, the thiazides, they have been known to decrease all cardiovascular uh, events other than heart failure. They can be used as best alternatives to thiazides when patients do not tolerate thiazides. It is recommended that when optimizing therapy, not to combine thiazides and calcium channel blockers, but to add an additional class, a different class of medication, perhaps an S on ARB instead. Within the calcium channel blockers, there are two classes. We have the dihydropyridines, of which Nifedipine and Lodipine are classic examples, 
And we have the non-dihydropyridines, of which the tyrosine and veropamil are classic examples. The main difference is that with the dihydropyridines, they are more specific and more potent in relaxing blood vessels. So the squeeze, remember, lessening, lesser the squeeze. Um, with the non-dihydropyridines, their effects are mainly with the heart. They are more heart-specific and are less potent in relaxing blood vessels. They are mostly used as anti-arrhythmic uh, drugs to control rate and rhythm of the heart. Long-acting nifedipine has greater antihypertensive action when compared to um, lodipine. For patients of African descent, initial therapy for hypertension without evidence of kidney failure or chronic kidney disease or heart failure should include a custom channel blocker or a thiazide diuretic. Side effects of the calcium channel blockers uh, for the dihydropyridines includes peripheral edema, which is leg swelling due to fluid retention. It's more pronounced with long-acting nifedipine compared to amlodipine. It can also cause lightheadedness, flushing, and headaches. On the non-dihydropyridine side, it's mostly a, a, a lower heart rate, uh, which we call bradycardia, and it can cause constipation in about 25% of the population. I am going to talk about the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors as well as the angiotensin-2 receptor blockers together because um, both classes have similar efficacies and pretty much share the same indications for treatment. The ACE and the ARBs are the antihypertensive medications of choice for patients who have hypertension with heart failure, hypertension with diabetes, hypertension with chronic kidney disease, and they are indicated as first line for such. Independent of their antihypertensive effect, these medications, this class of medications are proven to have a cardioprotective effect in patients with a high risk of cardiovascular disease. The most common side effect of the ACE inhibitors is cough, and this cough can be annoying and is a problem for patients with asthma and COPD. The cough can occur in as much as 20% of patients taking ACE inhibitors, and it takes about two to four weeks for the cough to resolve even after discontinuing the medication. The incidence of cough is less common with the ARBs. Other side effects include fatigue, as well as renal impairment, which is often reversible. ACE inhibitors and the ARBs are also uh, commonly associated with, uh, with um, a mild increase in potassium, hyperkalemia, as well as they can cause angioedema, which is a painless swelling under the skin, a rare side effect, but it does occur and occurs more with the ACE inhibitors than the ARBs. In black patients, though, we have seen the ARBs correlated with less incidence of both cough and angioedema. Both classes, ACE and ARBs, are contraindicated in patients that are pregnant. Now, these are the standards of care, the first-line therapies for treating hypertension. It doesn't mean that this is all that in uh, all the medications that are prescribed for treating hypertension. There are other medications that have been there which we call adjuncts, uh, antihypertensive therapies. And one of this class is the beta blockers. The beta blockers have been uh, in existence for decades. And they are typically non-selective beta blockers or selective beta blockers. Amongst the non-selective beta blockers, we have propanolol, labetalol, cavetolol, um, timolol, 
are for selective rehabetopolar, esmolar, and tenolol. The beta blockers today are not indicated as primary treatment of hypertension unless there is a specific, uh, is a specific indication of heart failure and myocardial infarction, otherwise called heart attack. They can be used though as add-on therapies in combination to treat resistant hypertension. The one thing about beta blockers is they should be avoided in patients with depression. Now, this is just a small add-on to this uh, presentation. There is a selective beta blocker by the name Atenolol. And I have to say this because I see this regularly and it just drives me crazy in the sense that Atenolol does not have the pharmacokinetic property or profile to be dosed or administered once a day. It should be taken or administered at least twice a day or replaced with metoprolol. I just had to say that. Side effects of beta blockers include a low heart rate, bradycardia, constipation, depression, fatigue, and sexual dysfunction. So patients who are dealing with erectile dysfunction, you might want to have a conversation with your doctor or your pharmacist if you are on a beta blocker. Additionally, beta blockers should be avoided because they can cause bronchospasms and worsen peripheral vascular disease. So for patients who have asthma, you want to stay away from beta blockers. Other adjunct therapies include hydrolyzine, which is a vasodilator. It is used to treat resistant hypertension as well as hypertensive emergencies. Uh, side effects of um, hydrolyzine includes headaches, flushing, palpitations, dizziness, as well as it can cause hemolytic anemia. Clonidine is another popular drug. It's not first-line therapy, but it is used as an add-on for when patients fail combination therapy. If you must use clonidine, the transdermal patch is preferable uh, than giving it by mouth. Side effects of clonidine include drowsiness, headaches, dizziness, nausea and vomiting, constipation, as well as a decrease in heart rate. Minoxidil is another popular medication. Uh, it's also an option for treating resistant um, hypertension. It provides really good blood pressure control, but it has associated fluid retention for which a loop diuretic is helpful. One of the popular side effects of minoxidil is abnormal hair growth. Now, there are some commercials out there where you know, you're, you're asked to apply a cream and you have hair growth. The main ingredient is minoxidil. Now you know why. Alpha blockers, another popular class. Meds in this class include terazosine, tamsulosine. Uh, they're not first line. They're not used to treat hypertension because they are not as effective in preventing cardiovascular disease compared to first line agents. They are typically reserved for treating enlarged prostrates. The side effects of, of uh, alpha blockers include, excuse me, increase in heart rate, orthostatic hypertension, which is when you rise up in the morning, you feel dizzy, you feel like fainting. Hence, for that singular reason, it's preferable to give it at bedtime. Combination therapy. When a patient fails a one-drug course for hypertension or high blood pressure, a combination should merit consideration. Combining two antihypertensive medications from two different classes should be a therapeutic option for patients with stage 2 hypertension, which is greater than 140 over 90. A study has showed that the reduction in blood pressure when drugs from two different classes are combined is approximately five times greater than when the dose of one drug is doubled. A combination of ARB, diuretic, 
abs costume channel blocker ace diuretic ace costume channel blocker is superior to obeda blocker diuretic combination in fact the beta blocker diuretic combination is associated with a high incidence of diabetes a combination of a thiazide with a potassium sparing diuretic is as effective as giving just a custom channel blocker in managing hypertension and has showed less incidence of a decrease in potassium when compared to just giving hydrochlorothiazide alone. A combination of an ACE inhibitor and an ARB is not recommended for hypertension. It has shown a higher incidence of side effects with no added benefits. So when the combination of two medications does not achieve the treatment goal, a third agent should be added. When the patient fails the three-drug regimen, then the medical provider should consider treatment of resistant hypertension by adding a fourth antihypertensive agent from any other class. Now, drugs like the aldosterone receptor um, blocker spironolactone comes to mind. Adosterone is a hormone that promotes retention of sodium or salt in the kidneys. So think back to our initial conversations about preload. We talked about ink, we talked about fluid volume, which is influenced by increase in salt intake as well as a retention of sodium or salt in the kidneys. Adosterone is the hormone that drives the retention of sodium or salt in the kidneys. Also, when we talk about the RAS system, the renin angiotensis system, there is a renin inhibitor called alaskirin, uh, which will be considered as an addition for patients who fill um, a three-drug regimen. What is resistant hypertension? So, resistant hypertension is uncontrolled blood pressure in the presence of concurrent use of three antihypertensive medications, including a diuretic. It's also defined as controlled blood pressure in the presence of concurrent use of four or more antihypertensive medications. So on one hand, it is uncontrolled blood pressure in the presence of three or more medications, including a diuretic, or it also controlled hypertension in the presence of four or more antihypertensive medications. Now mark this, note this, high blood pressure will not be controlled in the presence of untreated sleep apnea, especially in the black population. Now, what is dose optimization? So in treating hypertension, please note the maximum dose of each medication. It is very important to attain maximum dose before adding additional classes of medications for patients with compliance issues. There are some patients who cannot take more than one medication. So it's either you find a combination therapy that is formulated in one tablet or you have to do what is best for the patient because you want the patient to take the medication rather than not take the medication. So you might have to optimize therapy rather than you know add multiple medications to aid compliance. If you are a visual person, I advise you to go to our YouTube channel or Shakeo Before Use, where we have slides to show you most of our discussions for you to capture the essence. Now, there is a slide or there are slides that talk about dose optimization. We would list starting doses of medications in each class as well as the maximum dose. When is the best time to administer blood pressure medications? Now, blood pressure, as we know it, maintains a circadian rhythm. It increases during the early morning after waking up. Scientists say state that it starts to rise two hours before waking up. 
it peaks at midday. Midday, when is midday? What, 3, 4, 5 p.m.? And it starts to decline at night and drops further during sleep up to 15 to 20%. Now, individuals who follow this trend of a drop during sleep are termed dippers. Why those who do not have this drop in blood pressure during sleep are termed non-dippers? There is a growing body of evidence linking non-DP blood pressure with target organ damage as well as an increase in cardiovascular mortality. This is one of the benefits of a 24-hour ambulatory BP measurement. It can capture dippers as well as non-dippers. A Spanish study from 2019 involving over 19,000 patients showed that taking BP medications at night rather than in the morning cuts the risk of cardiovascular disease by nearly 50%. Too good to be true, huh? Just Google the study. In this large multi-center study, half the subjects were randomly assigned or selected to take BP meds in the morning and the other half take BP meds at night. They were followed for six years and the results showed that subjects who took BP meds at night had 40% lower risk of a heart attack, heart failure, and a stroke. The study also showed that the risk of dying from heart issues was cut by 66%. Wow. So if you think about this, since blood pressure starts to rise very early in the morning, it is unlikely that taking your BP meds in the morning can catch that early morning rise unless taken super early. Taking BP medications at night ensures that both the non-dipping pressures and the early morning surges are both controlled. Now there is a legitimate concern for taking diuretics at night as this might cause sleep disturbance and affect the quality of your sleep. And that is a conversation you should have with your pharmacist, with your doctor to determine the best course for your treatment. Let's talk about sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is not just simply loud snoring. Sleep apnea is not just simply loud snoring. Sleep apnea has been associated with resistant chronic hypertension. It is very important to understand the relationship between sleep apnea and high blood pressure because these two conditions affect one another. And treatment for sleep apnea can lower blood pressure in people who have both. Now, sleep apnea is very like high blood pressure in the sense that it's not something you can detect on your own. If you have sleep apnea, you likely don't know about it unless you're keeping your partner up at night by snoring or that you're gasping for breath when you sleep. So individuals who have sleep apnea actually stop breathing for short periods of time when they're sleeping. These pauses in breath can last for a few seconds to a few minutes and can occur as little as five to as many as 30 times per hour. Now, every time you stop breathing, your oxygen level drops. This raises your blood pressure. This puts an increased stress on your heart because it must work harder to normalize your blood pressure. People with severe sleep apnea experience blood pressure dips less than the 15 to 20% uh, that would indicate that they are non-dippers. People who have non-dipping blood pressure at night face an increased risk of cardiovascular issues. Sleep apnea is one of the most common sleep disorders in the United States. 
Of people diagnosed with sleep apnea, it is estimated that around half also have high blood pressure. But here's the good news. The treatment of sleep apnea may aid in lowering blood pressure levels. So if you're suffering from high blood pressure, I advise that it may benefit you to get checked for sleep apnea. Finally, hypertension in pregnancy. I'm just going to throw out a few definitions. What is chronic hypertension in pregnancy? It is blood pressure above 140 over 90 before 20 weeks of gestation. What is gestational hypertension? It is blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 after 20 weeks of gestation. What is severe hypertension in pregnancy? Blood pressure greater than 160 over 110. Preeclampsia is new onset of protein in the urine along with hypertension. And eclampsia is seizures with hypertension. Most often, it occurs in the third trimester within 48 hours of delivery. The medications, there's only a few select medications that are safe for uh, a pregnant mother with hypertension. They include nifedipine, methaldopa, labetalol, which is the drug of choice for preeclampsia, hydralazine, and magnesium sulfate, which actually has been shown to prevent worsening uh, from preeclampsia to uh, full-blown eclampsia. So in conclusion, the key to maintaining normal blood pressure, normal tension, is compliance with medications, taking the right BP medications based on race and concurrent disease conditions, lifestyle modifications, lifestyle changes, access to disease and medication information, Good quality, good quality BP measurement and treatment of sleep apnea. It is very, very important to discuss with your medic, with your, uh, your your provider, your pharmacist, to tailor your medications based on the information available. This is it for this episode of Shakeor Before Use. Please feel free to subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast stations. And feel free to send your comments, your questions uh, to askosis at shakewarbeforeuse.org. Askosis as in A-S-K-O-S-A-S at shakewarbeforeuse.org. Till next time, I appreciate your time. God bless. Au revoir. Inside the highway, so oh, oh, oh. come and take the cake. Oh, oh, oh.